there and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's Davis Now Lectures podcast with me, Cleon and Ian Lewin. In this episode, we'll hear from the Thomas Davis Lectures Archives of 1982, the centenary of the birth of James Joyce. Richard Ellman, the acclaimed American scholar and biographer of James Joyce, considers the many letters written by the writer. Ellman notes that Joyce did not consider the letter, nor its brazen sister, the postcard, as a literary form of any consequence. But almost every day he burdened postmen in different parts of his hemisphere with correspondence. Elman also says that at letter's length Joyce felt comfortable and wrote sparingly and to the point. Here's Richard Elman. Letter writing imposes its small ceremonies, even upon those who disdain the medium. An audience of one requires confrontation too and even a perfunctory message discloses a little with what candor, modesty, or self-esteem its writer ranks himself in the world. Some accompanying hint of his appraisal of that world is bound to appear in the way he asserts or beseeches a tie with his correspondent, the degree of familiarity he takes for granted, the extent to which he solicits action or approbation, the alacrity and tenacity with which he joins issue. He may present himself in various guises as machine, badger, deer, spider, bird. Whatever his mode, if he is a practicing writer, his assembling of words can never be totally negligent. Once enslaved by language, forever enslaved. James Joyce did not regard the letter or its brazen sister, the postcard, as a literary form of any consequence. But almost every day he burdened postmen in different parts of his hemisphere with his sedulous correspondence. At letter's length he felt comfortable and wrote sparely and to the point. His letters adopt a stance which at first may appear the reverse of that in his books. His creative works are humorous, lyrical, daring. These qualities appear from time to time in his correspondence but its prevailing tenor is wry, terse, pressed down. I am in double trouble, mental and material, he writes, and says in another letter, my spiritual bark is on the rocks. In both of these, the statement has a sweep and finality which paradoxically imply that all may not be lost. His summaries of his condition are sometimes more epigrammatic, My mouth is full of decayed teeth and my soul of decayed ambitions. And sometimes he relents a little to joke. Well, as Mr. Pater beautifully says, I have reached the low water mark in Xmas's this year time. He is fond of deflating his life into a vista of ludicrous confusion. As Joyce writes later of Shem, oh, The lowness of him was beneath all up to that sunk to. In an early letter he wrote that he could not enter society except as a vagabond. And there is perhaps always a submerged pleasure in his not being an upstanding British subject. The sense of contradiction between his works and his letters is illusory. The attitude of resignation is not so far removed from that of confidence as it first appears. It contains, in fact, a peremptory note. Underneath themes which are favorites of Joyce from beginning to end, 
the meticulous exposition of his penury, his physical weakness, or his discouragement. There is the conviction that he expresses rarely because he holds it so unshakably, that his needs are trivial when weighed with his deserts. The letters simultaneously plead and berate. He tells his brother, do not delay so long executing my requests as I waste a lot of ink. He demands patronage rather than charity. Joyce's conviction of merit was justified in the event, yet he was imbued with it long before there were publications or even manuscripts to confirm it. Confidence in his powers may be said to have antedated their manifestation. Because of this confidence, he has little patience with those who fail to pay tribute to his talent and is likely to shift suddenly from supplicant to renunciant. He is regularly on the verge of scorning the help he requires, though his gestures of renunciation and threats of gestures might argue that Joyce was, as he called Ibsen, an ego arc. They must somehow be reconciled with his other qualities. Joyce was gregarious, filial, fraternal, uxorious, paternal, in varying degrees, and surrounded himself with relatives and friends. His letters to his son Giorgio and his daughter Lucia demonstrate his talent when they were in the dumps for finding miseries of his own equivalent to theirs, with which he proposed to cheer them up. He needed to return from hours of isolation, it would seem, and to feel that a few people were in rapport with him. Joyce's lifelong reluctance to comment publicly on his work gives unusual value to his letters as evocations of his mental scenery. They do not, however, offer more than fragments of self-analysis, and we must relate them ourselves. Certain expressions appear often enough to claim special notice. Among them, the word artist thrusts itself forward as a starting point. Joyce's conception of himself as artist had origins in his early life. If a portrait of the artist may be said to plead for anything, it is for the continuity of the artistic temperament almost from infancy. He apparently first articulated this vocation soon after he passed from childhood to adolescence. The words artist and puberty had in fact a relation that is several times hinted at in his letters. As early as the age of 14, Joyce said, he began to go to brothels, initially with a strong sense of guilt. The church urged him to master these impulses, but he found himself unable and at heart unwilling to do so. At confession, he could find comfort and pardon, but not sanction. He was unwilling to give up either the spiritual idealism, which had sustained him as a child, or the erotic drive which was agitating his adolescence. If debauchery was a part of his character, and he sometimes said it was, then it must be justified. The word artist, which in the late 19th century had been invested with a secular awe, offered a profession which would protect all his soul instead of only its idealistic side, and might yet give it a profane sanctity. He thought of it as denoted something solid, unitary, and radiant, compounding into a new purity the errant flesh and the moral nature. 
In early youth, Joyce began to formulate the relation of art and the spiritual self into an aesthetic. As his letters testify, this aesthetic would vindicate him by establishing the primacy of the poet over the priest through a system rival to that of theology. The artist was to be shown as devoted to integrating human experience on a level higher than the priest's and without external or supernatural authority to make his work easier. This conscious definition of the principles of his art finds an accompaniment in his letters in Joyce's reiterated insistence that his own behavior has been defensible and even praiseworthy. He tells his brother that his struggle with conventions was not entered into by me so much as a protest against these conventions as with the intention of living in conformity with my moral nature. He granted contemptuously, there are some people in Ireland who would call my moral nature oblique, people who think that the whole duty of man consists in paying one's debts. He is not less but more moral than other people. Although Joyce does not bother to mention his moral nature often, his awareness of it lies behind most of his letters. It enables him to assert to Grant Richards, Dubliners is a chapter of the moral history of my country. It underlies his criticism of other writers, such as Thomas Hardy. He writes his brother in December 1906 to complain of a book of Hardy's stories called Life's Little Ironies and says, One story is about a lawyer on the circuit who seduces a servant, then receives letters from her so beautifully written that he decides to marry her. The letters are actually written by the servant's mistress, who is in love with the lawyer. After the marriage, servant is accompanied to London by mistress. Husband says fondly, Now, dear J.K.S., will you write a little note to my dear sister, A.B.X., and send her a piece of the wedding cake? One of those nice little letters you know so well how to write, love. Exit of servant wife. She goes out and sits at a table somewhere and I suppose writes something like this. Dear Mrs. X, I enclose a piece of the wedding cake. Enter husband, lawyer, genial. Genially, he says, well, love, how have you written? And then the whole discovery is found out. Servant wife blows her nose in the letter and lawyer confronts the mistress. She confesses. Then they talk a page or so of copybook talk, as distinguished from servant's ditto. She weeps, but he is stern. Is this as near as Thomas Hardy can get to life, I wonder? Oh, my poor fledglings, poor Corley, poor Ignatius Gallagher. What is wrong with these English writers is that they always keep beating about the bush. In discountenancing Hardy, Joyce was attacking not only a kind of fiction, but a way of seeing or failing to see. Hardy appeared to him to lack the directness which he had taught himself by accepting nothing because it had been accepted before. As a result, the characterization in Hardy's stories was a false one based upon conventional ideas of class. Joyce, living with a servant girl himself, was particularly entitled to detect the improbability here. He rejected as well the whole idiom as copybook talk. For Joyce, Hardy had lacked the courage to break through, and so was already dated, the moral fault breeding a literary one. 
Joyce did conceive of himself as a hero, but thought it advisable not to say so explicitly. He thought of himself also as in some ways a martyr, but as usual his way of saying so is by seeming to repudiate the idea. Referring to this Christ-like resemblance, he wrote his brother, I must get rid of some of those Jewish bowels I have in me yet. And in another letter he said, I am not likely to die of bashfulness, but neither am I prepared to be crucified to attest the perfection of my art. The figure pleased him, and a year later he remarked once more, I have written quite enough, and before I do any more in that line I must see some reason why. I am not a literary Jesus Christ. But three disavowals of the crown are less convincing than one. Whatever he might say in the cold mutton of letters, Joyce was fascinated by the Christ-like analogies of the artist and developed them fully in a portrait of the artist. A powerful sacrificial feeling sustained him as he fought for a literary foothold around southern Europe, staving off mosquitoes in Pola, instilling an alien tongue into Triestines, cashing checks for other people in Rome. But he undercut it with modesty by jokingly or grimly calling attention to his defects and failures. This mixture permeates his letters and is somewhat explained by them. Joyce often appeared to be cold and aloof, but in his own view these qualities were less fundamental than others. He thought of himself most fondly as fragile and vulnerable. Once this part of his self-portrait becomes visible, other elements take shape around it. The enigma of a manner, which he speaks in the first draft of a portrait of consciously fabricating, is seen as an attempt at self-protection. Can you not see the simplicity which is at the back of all my disguises? We all wear masks, he writes to Nora Barnacle, and he is pleased at least temporarily when she pierces his magnificent poses and recognizes him to be an impostor. Joyce liked to think of himself as weak and of others as stronger than he. The letters to Nora Barnacle Joyce, which make this position plain, are psychologically the most important that he wrote. They move gradually towards self-surrender, as if it were a kind of ultima thule. At first their tone is jaunty, with some of that assumed Don Giovannism which he attributed to the young Shakespeare. But within a month of the beginning of their courtship, the tone is solemnized. She must become his mistress, to be sure, but he seems more occupied with something else, that she become his fellow conspirator against the established order. My mind rejects the whole present social order and Christianity. Home, the recognized virtues, classes of life, and religious doctrines, he writes to her in August 1904. His intransigence to the world is related to his submission to her. Their elopement must not be sportive, but agonized, a sign and portent of his future work. He was aware that to his father, and to many of his friends, the relationship with Nora Barnacle was a misalliance. Though he pretended to be impervious to their criticism, their least word, he told her, tumbles my heart about like a bird in a storm. Yet like Heine, as he says, and like others he does not trouble to name, he had the courage to see that the world was wrong about this as about other things. By virtue of being poor and in love with him, 
Nora became the band's sweetheart of a band artist. It seemed to me that I was fighting a battle with every religious and social force in Ireland for you, and that I had nothing to rely on but myself. Chambermaid and prodigal son might make a match of it. Obloquy was a state they might share, like pleasures of the bed. Joyce's affection for Nora Barnacle developed rapidly, though she complained it lagged behind her own. He was already unconsciously altering his role in the affair from active to passive. Allow me, dearest Nora, he wrote her, to tell you how much I desire that you should share any happiness that may be mine, and to assure you of my great respect for that love of yours, which it is my wish to deserve and to answer. The word love was one that mustered up all his doubts, doubts of his own sincerity, doubts of the emotion itself. To talk of spiritual love, he informed Stanislaus, was lying drivel, though in a few years he used the phrase without irony. But as he said, he was deeply impressed by the unqualified feeling Nora Barnacle had for him, and the fact that she expressed it without the coyness he had come to expect in girls of his age. I never could speak to the girls I used to meet at houses, he wrote her later. Their false manners checked me at once. Stephen Dedalus represents Shakespeare as equally shy. If Nora was untutored, she was also unspoiled, a simple, honorable soul, and one incapable of any of the deceits which pass for current morality. It was very important for him, knowing with what intricate devices he met most people, to have in her someone he could trust. His reserve, his sense of watching his own dignity, are involved in almost all his other relationships. With Harriet Weaver, his patron, for example, he seems to want not only to act politely towards her, but to see himself as meeting the English Protestant middle class with adequate decorum. A certain gentleness comes through regardless, but almost against his will. With Nora, there was the possibility available to him nowhere else of complete self-revelation, a great relief to a suspicious man. He came to feel that she was more than a wife or mistress. She must triple as a symbol of Ireland and a more genuine one than Yeats's Maud Gunn. In her, he saw, as he said, the beauty and the doom of the race of which I am a child. And he asked her, Oh, take me into your soul of souls, and then I will become indeed the poet of my race. This yielding of himself was not achieved without difficulty. Joyce had to pass through stages of amusement, perplexity, boredom, and even distrust. The last was, of course, the most serious. In 1909, on his first trip back to Dublin, he was led mistakenly to believe that Nora had been faithless to him during a period which he held sacred, the early months of their love. In a few days he was undeceived and felt guilty for having so misjudged her. His first letters were filled with remorse. What a worthless fellow I am! But gradually he tried to turn the incident to advantage by ushering her into a greater intimacy. His letters became a turbulent mixture of erotic imagery and apologies for it, the apologies being accompanied by equally extreme flights of adoration. His relationship with her had to counterbalance all his rifts with other people. Having become partners in spiritual love, 
They must now share an onanistic complicity, agitating each other to sexual climax by means of their letters. In this way, Joyce renewed the conspiratorial and passionate understanding that they had had when they first left Ireland together. The atmosphere is not one of Catholic guilt, but it is certainly not one of pagan insouciance either. He feels compelled to set images of purity against images of impurity. He dwells upon the association of the sexual and excretory organs, then fears she will consider him corrupt, although he has found learned sanction in Spinoza. Yet he also wants corruption to be a part of their love as well as incorruption. Are you too then like me, he asks hopefully, one moment high as the stars, the next lower than the lowest wretches? They must share in shame, shamelessness, and unashamedness. Yet the letters rebuke obvious labels by their ulterior purpose. Besides the immediate physical goal, Joyce wishes to anatomize and reconstitute and crystallize the emotion of love. He goes further still. Like Richard Rowan in Exiles, he wishes to possess his wife's soul and have her possess his in utter nakedness. To know someone else beyond love and hate, beyond vanity and remorse, beyond human possibility almost, is his extravagant desire. The hints and declarations in these letters enable us to see Joyce a little as he saw himself. While he considered that rebellion had been for him the beginning of wisdom, a kind of birth of consciousness, he did not regard himself primarily as a rebel. His dominant image of himself was one of delicacy and fragility, of perpetual ill health and ill luck, of a tenor among bases. It led him to imagine himself as like a deer or a bird or a woman or like a Gandhian Christ. He reacted against varieties of power by juxtaposing the strong with the weak, Boylan with Bloom, or the aunt with the Gracehoper. Then his wit challenged the powerful masculine energies until they had lost their strength. He wished to protect the lyrical center of his work by acknowledging with laughter all the absurdities of human conduct through which it must draw its breath. He counters a possible contempt for his almost effeminate delicacy by examining in the fullest and liveliest way its inescapably comic embodiment. Where other writers, like Wells, appear always to be thrusting, Joyce characterized himself more nearly by the parry. Each of his works concludes in a lyrical assertion, which is made possible by the undermining of maleness by comedy, as if brute force had to be overcome by subtler devices. In Finnegan's Wake, the Crimean War is reduced to a scatological joke, the Battle of Waterloo to an extravaganza in a waxworks museum, and the World War to a prize fight. In Ulysses, the Cyclops is defeated in a portrait Ireland is left. Joyce's distaste for war, crime, and brutality relate to this preference for all that is not the bully. His work is not conceived as a blow in the face, but these letters help us to perceive as a matrical envelopment. But this appraisal of Joyce, which his letters sponsor, is not entirely satisfactory. His disclaimers of masculinity, his assumption of feminine weakness, were secondary manifestations. After all, 
strong men have hidden themselves among women before. His succession of mewing exhortations always sprang from initial decisions inflexibly pursued. He cared for his daughter with a solicitude that could be called feminine, but his delicate coaxing and joking were directed to twist her mind back to sanity like a resistant piece of iron. Though he lived in discouragement like a bad climate and sporadically thought of not finishing his books, he needled and threaded each one to its conclusion, as if adjusting himself to his pliant, jointless body, which was basically tough and wiry, he imagined himself in the state of being malleable and passive and commenced to live there like a second residence. The mixture of such qualities as pride and plaintiveness, the flashes of candor amid stretches of tortuous reticence or confessions that are off the point, lend his spare self-portraiture in these letters an interest quite different from that to be found in the shaped nuances of Henry James or the open-collared eloquence of D.H. Lawrence. An urge to the immoderate is always there, but at various distances from the surface. Read in this light, these letters, the best of them, are among the most interesting and insinuating ever written. That was Richard Ellman, biographer of James Joyce, from the 1982 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, marking the centenary of Joyce's birth. Look out for more talks from this series relating to James Joyce and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rte.ie forward slash radio one Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleanan Ianlun, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.